Hello and welcome to Legal Tech Arcade with me, Rob McAdam, an independent podcast about tech-driven legal service delivery and the people and products that make it all happen. Okay, so welcome to the latest episode of Legal Tech Arcade. Uh, today, I'm really pleased to be joined by Daniel Porras, Chief Commercial Officer at Legatix. Dan, welcome to Legal Tech Arcade podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Rob. Yeah, no, it's, it's awesome to, uh, for you to be on and uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Um, I, I know you've listened to a few of the episodes before, so I know, I know you know what's coming um, in terms of the icebreaker question. It's a, it's a bit of a tradition um, playing on the whole Legal Tech Arcade theme. But um, go on then. So tell me, are you a video game fan? I think I know the answer to this, um, but yeah, are you a video game fan? And if so, you know, what, what are some of your favorite video games to play? <laughs> yeah, so I, I have to admit, I, I was when I was younger. I'm not so much so now. And when I was trying to think of uh, sort of a favorite video game, I, I was torn between um, a couple of my favorite PC games when I was younger and, uh, and, and then the actual sort of console games. But I, I think I'd have to go with my... Um, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, which was on okay. my Sega Sega Master System. At, uh, yeah, the yeah, time. I remember. Yeah, were they called Sega Master Systems in the uh, UK? I think they had different names uh, elsewhere. But is it? I, maybe it was. I just remember the the Mega Drive um, and the Sega Game Gear. I used to yeah, love so, Sonic on the Sega Game Gear. It was awesome. So I think the Mega Drive was the was the sixteen bit, which I was super jealous of because I I was a laggard and I managed to get the um, the, the Master System just before the Mega Drive came out. <laughs> yeah. So this was this was back when I think it was I think it was an eight bit um, yeah. console and it had built in um, Alex the Kid. So if you okay. sort of you had I had my Sonic co- cartridge and you'd have to try and blow to get the dust out to then get it in. <laughs> yeah. If it wasn't in properly, then you'd be stuck with another uh, game. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. But um, you mentioned the PC games, though, and I've been waiting for someone to come on and uh, talk about PC games because I, I was more of a PC gamer, not more than, more so than consoles. So, what was uh, what, what were the PC games you used to play? <laughs> there, were, there were three that came to mind yeah. that were really hard to then choose between which one I I preferred. I um, I was a big fan of Lemmings. Um, yes, yes, I remember that. Um, the the other two that were probably close, second and third, were Worms. Did you ever get into Worms, Rob? Is that the um, the one where they like fire bazookas? Exactly. Uh, yeah, 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 I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and and then there was Rayman as well, which uh, which which was a favourite. Yeah. Which I think uh, was also a console game, but um, I had a version that was that was on the PC. But uh, yeah, I've. Uh, Somehow gaming hasn't continued on into my into my later years, oh. but I do have very fond memories uh, of, of of those. From I, I, I thought you were going to say you're a big gamer because I remember when we spoke on video, you had that enormous uh, gaming, gaming headset. headset. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're they're the standard company issue, but um, oh, nice. Yeah, but okay. uh, no, I did very much enjoy uh, those those games as a as a as a child. So I'm I'm just disappointed now because I was hoping you would say Monkey Island. I don't know whether you ever played Monkey <laughs> Island. But, no, uh, oh man, that was just, that was my favorite game. It's, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to save that for another episode when someone, when someone comes on, who's a, another a, a Monkey Island aficionado and, uh, I'll have that discussion another time. But yeah, it, <laughs> I think you can get it for like iPad now. Uh, you know, just play the retro games on iPad. So you should check it out. Yeah. But yeah, it's awesome. Okay, I will. Anyway, so uh, I've noticed like these episodes every time we get longer and longer talking about games and less and less <laughs> about legal tech. So <laughs> no, I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on. So 
was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people would have heard about Legatics, um, but I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about Legatics and, and perhaps more particularly, what, what does your journey look like? What was your career journey uh, and how did you kind of find yourself um, Chief Commercial Officer at Legatics? Yeah, thank, thanks, Rob. So um, Legatics, for, for, for those that haven't come across us before, is a transaction management platform. And what we do is we automate a lot of the process-driven work that lawyers do and provide a more efficient and transparent way to, to run legal transactions. Um, my, the journey that I sort of went on to, to get here, as uh, a number in the sector, um, I started my career as a lawyer. Mm. So I, I practiced as an M&A lawyer. Um, you might hear from my accent initially in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, so I was working for um, one of the top tier firms there and um, really enjoyed um, the aspects of the role. It's obviously you get to work on some really high uh, profile transactions. But what I was just so shocked by from the very early days is just how administrative so many mm -hmm. parts of the role were. And, you know, I sort of draw back on... Uh, it, if not the first, it was certainly one of the first transactions that I was put on was uh, at the time the Pfizer demerger. So this is back in around 2010. Yeah. Pfizer was separating out its animal health business called um, Zoetis, which then listed on the New York Stock Exchange for $2.2 .2 And it's like, you know, when you talk about those kinds of deals, they sound mm. super sexy and they sound great on your CV. <laughs> but the reality of what I was actually doing as yeah. a junior lawyer was um, uh, we, we were helping out with the due diligence report and my task was to manage something called Annex H. Mm. And Annex H was this huge spreadsheet that was going to go as an annex to the due diligence report that summarized the, the contracts that were being reviewed. So for the most part, until the very end of, of this exercise, I wasn't even reviewing the contracts themselves. Other people were reviewing the contracts, giving them to me, and I was sometimes spending more than 12 hours a day mm. literally taking that data that other people had done of their summaries and inputted them into this, this huge annex. And it just struck me as how crazy this was that I'd you know, gone through law school, I was being charged out at quite a rate to be doing yeah. what's largely administrative work. But I, uh, you know, in the back of my mind, I just sort of felt like this is uh, part of what's uh, required to be trained in a law firm. And, um, you know, if you stick it out, then you'll get your hands on the, you know, mm. the really technical legal work. Yeah. What I did find is uh, those frustrations persisted uh, six years in, um, and uh, you know I, w I, I was running my own deals, and and um, you know my my role had changed, but the extent to which the administrative aspects was still a really key part of my role was mm. still very much persistent. Mm. Um, so it, it was really that frustration. Um, even six years into practice with how much of my life was still spent doing administrative work and, and looking at how un other industries uh, were, were being disrupted by technology and how that wasn't coming into the law that really drove me to think, like, probably time for a bit of a change. I'd like to be part of being involved on the technology side. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the actual journey, though, um, within the law firms was, was really interesting. So I, I did the first three years of my career in uh, New Zealand. I then had quite a wonderful opportunity in Australia um, working in a private advisory practice where we were, I was mostly doing uh, buy side transactions for my first three years. And then for the um, further three years, I was mostly doing sell side of um, 
mostly successful entrepreneurs who had grown businesses and were helping them to exit um, their businesses, which mm. was really great experience. Um, and I had a bit of an opportunity at that particular firm. I had a very supportive supervising partner who um, uh, I was talking about the opportunities that there were with the growing startup community. And I was working in Melbourne at the time. Um, so he supported me um, with going out and seeing if I could grow a bit of a practice around the, the startup community. And what I realized was um, that the challenges with actually servicing um, startup clients, you know, they mm -hmm. don't have a lot of money. The only way to really be able to do that effectively is to start thinking uh, in a smarter way about how you actually provide those services to them, you know, looking at doc automation to actually provide some form of self-service shareholders agreement or, you know, other key documents. So um, I was starting to progress down that path. And then at the same time, um, my supervising partner was sitting on the board and our CEO was getting um, quite interested in the opportunities um, to, to do something in the innovation space with, with legal tech. So I actually um, was involved as part of a working group with, with the CEO and my supervising partner to um, develop out the um, basically map out what would then become Asia Pacific's first uh, legal tech accelerator. Oh, wow. um, so that, that was, that was really interesting. And, and the, the concept there was basically to set aside some, some funding. Um, and it was a competition style uh, event where people could apply. Um, they'd get funding from the firm along with, um, uh, travel support, workspace, mentoring, and legal advice from, from senior lawyers. So yeah, that was that was that was quite interesting as well. But still, for me, the drive was there to do something uh, a bit different. Um, so I, I headed off to. I had the opportunity to come to the UK to go to business school. Um, so I, I uh, went to Cambridge to do my MBA. Mm -hmm. And if, if I'm completely honest, at the time I was so focused on doing something so different to the law that I thought I'd want to go and work for one of the big technology companies. Yeah. So. Before I'd even started the MBA, the, the careers team um, actually mentioned to me that there were a couple of legal technology companies uh, based in Cambridge that I should think about having a, having a chat to. And it was only about halfway through the MBA that I, I decided to actually go and, and, and have a chat with them. So um, these were luminance, which had just been spun out of Cambridge yeah. University and, um, and Thought River was yeah. Um, yeah. The, the other one there. And... Um, and, and bearing in mind, this was back in 2016, so they're, they're, they're very different companies than, than they are today, and it's been wonderful seeing you know, their successes over the, past, over the past few years as well. But that, that really started to, to pique my interest, and um, what, what I did in the latter part of the MBA was started going around and just having coffee catch-ups with founders and CEOs of, of legal tech companies that were based um, around you know, London, Cambridge area, and um, it, it was in that process that I that I met Anthony, who had um, who had founded Legatix, and immediately it just spoke to the pain points that I sort of discussed from my from my early days. Mm -hmm. It was it, and Anthony had faced the frustrations from a slightly different perspective. He was a banking and finance lawyer, so he'd faced the frustrations of having to manage the you know the conditions precedent process, which yeah. is very common on those yeah. really big. Uh, banking transactions, but if you really boil it down, it's, it's the same frustrations that that I'd had when it came to completion on an M and A transaction or steps plans. And I I, yeah. I saw the the use case 
that he was focused on at the time, which was more around banking and finance, and I could immediately see the applicability for for broader corporate transactions um, as well. So the the two of us uh, teamed up, and, and it was quite a good time because Anthony had already received some um, early feedback on a minimum viable product and was close to having a product that was ready to go to market. So I, I really came on board to help Anthony bring that bring mm. that product to market. And we, we did that back in, in 2017. So my journey to then sort of chief commercial officer was at the beginning, it's jack of all trades. It was very much, um, uh, very much involved in the sales process, account management, um, picking up support calls, um, you know, over, you know, having a finger in all of these different functions, which has then helped a lot with the current role, which is really overseeing um, you know the the distinct teams that we now have that yeah. are that are, that are doing that within the company. Yeah, that's a, that's an amazing you know an amazing and uh, very similar experience actually to to a few other people I've spoken to recently. Um, and, and you know I I empathise with with your background and a lot actually having been like you an M and A lawyer um, like you having sat there until God knows what time in the evening two or three yeah. o'clock doing very you know, like you say, admin, admin tasks and wandering around the streets of, of Leeds, actually, in the UK, looking, you know, to, to try and buy a toothbrush at five in the morning, you know, just to clean myself yeah. up and get back into it. And, and you know, it is, it's crazy. And I think like you, I was just looking for that, that other avenue to go down um, that was, that I was going to find more enjoyable and challenging. Um, and, it, and it's great to, it's great to hear these these experiences of people like you who have had those challenges, but then found your way into a into a company that is delivering software and tools that are aimed at actually helping people uh, and actually you know, helping people like you were a few years back who were struggling. Um, I think that's uh, it's a great story. It's a great story. Thanks, Rob. Okay, so uh, Dan, um, what I wanted to do on the podcast today is obviously there's there's lots of topics I'm sure we could uh, explore loads of things we could talk about um, but one thing I thought we could talk about is uh, how you successfully or how organizations or firms can successfully purchase on board ensure they see return on their investment in in tech and legal technology I know you know that's a huge challenge um, I think there's obviously some some great tools on the market, some fantastic tools on the market right now. Um, so there's no lack of, of choice. Um, and from my experience, I guess the, the choice isn't the problem. I think the biggest challenge actually is that um, organizations do struggle to go through that process of purchasing technology, onboarding technology, and then go on to successfully see the, the desired return on investment. So I, I thought we could explore that in a bit more detail. But I mean, is, do you agree that that's that's a challenge that actually choosing a technology that you want to, to onboard isn't necessarily the problem. It's actually then making that happen. I would agree with that. I think there are challenges the whole way along along the journey, um, which which does include the purchasing decision, but mm. certainly the actual adoption, <clears throat> you know, ensuring return on investment, making sure that, that you know, the software doesn't become just shelfware and, and not actually be used exactly. is, is, a, is a massive challenge across... Um, across the sector yeah but I mean is there is there an earlier challenge so obviously there is a process to go through for any organization in purchasing technology 
But before you even go through that process, I guess there's a challenge right up front about getting buy-in, winning the hearts and minds of internal stakeholders, you know, explaining what the benefit of this technology is going to be, why it's important. Um, you know, have you seen that be a challenge for some some clients, some organisations actually doing that early legwork to get that buy-in? Absolutely. I, you know, it, it's funny because I've, I've seen how the industry's evolved just over the past, say, three or four years. Um, and what what we found even back in sort of 2017, um, it, it was generally easy enough to get a demonstration mm. with, with a firm. Um, we spent quite a bit of time on um, finessing a, a pitch for when you did cold call. At the time, it was the the, the, the partners at the firms that you'd you'd get in touch with. Yeah. Um, and and generally, I mean, the pain point that that we discussed earlier is such that that people get it and they're interested enough to find out more. Um, so it was it's tended to be easy enough to get the 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 software demonstrations. But then, you know, once once you're in there, um. And I'll, I'll say this has changed a bit more recently, and, and you, uh, I'm sure you, you'd be able to comment on this as, as well, Rob, but I, I do feel the sophistication of firms has really developed and yeah. Yeah. the development of innovation teams and having a much more structured process to ensure that discrete partners aren't purchasing technology or making purchasing decisions that That's then right, yeah. can derail initiatives internally. So, um, you know, there, there, were, there were pros and cons. I think we were able to get in a lot faster um, earlier on. Um, and sometimes that worked well. If a firm was really then willing to just run with it, things could happen quite quickly. Mm. Um, but quite often it, it, you then end up just very siloed with, within a firm as well. So I, I do think overall it's been a, re a really positive thing. But the, the, the challenge is even once you're in um, giving a demonstration, it's a question of do you have the right people involved in, in the room? Are the, are the right stakeholders actually there? Um, it's um, that the question we often had early on is as much as they see the pain point, um, you know, what, why should they as a firm decide to adopt this technology early? Um, there, there's, there's a great mentor of mine who, um, who, who uh, his name's Mark Smith. He's um, at, at Lexus, but also a professor at, um, at, at Cambridge. And he, he talked to me about, in his experience, there, there are three whys. You, you, you need to be able to explain you know, why consider, in the case of legal transaction management, you know, why consider this at all? Um, the second is why should it be us versus the other products that are on the market? Mm. But the most challenging is actually the why now. Um, why, I, I can kind of get those first two, but tell me, the partner of the law firm, why I should be going for this right now as opposed to waiting for um, the market to pick up this and, and to go with it. And, and I've been asked that point blank by a partner um, in, in a demonstration. And, um, and, and I think that that's a really interesting question. Yeah, um, and we, we have been very, very fortunate to have some very forward-thinking law firms come on board as early adopters and really run with it. And I feel very fortunate that that's enabled us to really you know, grow as a company mm. off that early adoption from those firms. And, and somewhat unusually, we haven't taken huge amounts of funding. We've, we've actually managed to grow largely off, off customer revenues. Mm. But I do think it is challenging for a lot of legal uh, technology vendors when, when you're coming in there. And uh, there are just so many hurdles to get through before you can even get to, um, 
you know being paid for for the use of that software yeah um that uh, you know sort of joke about it sometimes but i think now there's there's almost this like death by um procurement process there's um yeah hugely you know you've got to win the hearts and minds as you said in the room and get people interested generally we find that's not the issue it's then once they've decided okay we're willing to prioritize this and think about this now you've then got to go through um you know the procurement process itself Mm -hmm. and we were fortunate again that some of that got accelerated because certain partners just you know beat down the doors of the IT teams and InfoSec and said, look, I want you to prioritize this. I want to use this on the next deal. Um, increasingly, we had, you know, client demand um, really pushes the yeah, firms exactly. to to speed up procurement. But I think for a lot of legal tech vendors, the often, you know, nine month plus procurement process that you get through, even if people are interested, mm. is is massively, massively challenging. It, and, it is. You know, it is. I mean, just on that, I think... Um, you're talking there about that kind of cold calling and trying to find that that kind of champion, that sponsor, someone who kind of goes, yeah, I get this. Yeah, I'm really interested in this. And I think you might have to do a little bit of legwork and ringing around, but you will find that person. I think the, the biggest challenge then is actually for that person to then, you know, you found your kind of um, your bridgehead into the firm. And then I guess they've got to go and spread the word. They've got to go and be the advocate for this tool yeah. internally. Um, and, 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 and like you say, I think when you're a partner, that might be slightly easier, not, not hugely. It depends how, I guess, how senior a partner you are, but, um, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're the senior partner or managing partner and say, I want this tool, bring it in. I'm sure, you know, that's pretty much going to happen. Junior partner might struggle a little bit more. And if you're an associate, you can see the value, but there's a lot of legwork you've got to then go and do internally to go and persuade the partners to persuade, um, you know, your, maybe your legal technology team to go and persuade IT to all get involved. Um, and it's a really hard process to, to, to do that. And I think that's where these um, new law teams, these innovation teams internally at, at, at law firms can really help because I think actually they can step in and, and partner with the, the person from the practice group or team and say, let's do this together. Let's build that business case. Um, let's go and advocate for this tool internally uh, together and, and see where we get. I think I think the procurement process itself is an interesting one to dive into because I think it's one that's not often described, sort of explained from both perspectives, and that's something that I'd actually be interested in your view on, Rob. Mm. Because it, 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 on the vendor side, it quite often feels like a bit of a black hole. You, you sort of you you know there's been interest. You're going through procurement, mm. um, and you know the two main parts are uh, the contracting and then um, information security. Yeah. So um, it, it, what, what I often find, or certainly did find, um, was, you know, it didn't feel like much progress was, was happening. Whereas I'm sure what's happening in practice is there's a lot of running around happening in, internally within the firm. Um, but, but maybe you can speak to that a bit, Rob. Like, what, what, what does it look like from your side? If you've decided that you are interested, like, where do you then take it? Where do you take it next? Yeah, I mean... I think the, I can see that, um, yeah, it's an interesting one from a vendor perspective looking in. I guess I've kind of lived it on both sides. Um, and I think there'll be vendors that look in and think this might seem a bit slow, but I'm sure something's happening and something is happening. And then there'll be vendors that say, this is a bit slow. I'm sure something's happening. And then things aren't happening. Mm. Um, and I think from a, from the law firm perspective, I think the, the biggest thing I've learned is just to be clear about the process upfront as early as possible internally 
um, because a lot of the time you are dealing with um, you're dealing with people uh, that aren't actually that used to bringing in SaaS tools or you know, tools like Legatics. Um, and what you need to do is you need to understand right what who do we need to engage with? What do we need to do? So is that IT? Is that legal? Is that risk? Is that compliance? Is that finance? Like who is that? And then teeing them up, explaining to them, you know, what what you're doing, what you're planning, and why, um, and then actually working with them to determine, okay, what are the different steps we need to go through? When it, when are we likely to draw on resource from, say, legal, or when are we going to need to draw on resource from risk and compliance mm-hmm. uh, and IT? Making sure that it sits within IT's plan that they've got resource set aside to look at things like security um, or um, support and maintenance, etc. And so, from a from a law firm perspective, um, that'll either happen, or it'll half happen, or it won't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the kind of the three camps. And depending on on what's happened, it'll look very different to a vendor. So you'll you'll probably deal with people that say, "This is our plan. This is our map. This is what we're going to do. This is when we're going to do it." And you can be kind of, "Okay, it's going to take two or three months, but we know it's going to happen. They've got all the resources lined up." Or you'll get you'll talk to people at a law firm. They'll say we've we, we, we've got to do this, uh, and we've got all that organised. And then you'll probably get a call saying, ah, but yeah, but we didn't realise we actually had to do this, that, and the other as well. And that's going to take a bit more time. And then you'll talk to, to firms that say, yeah, we were really enthusiastic about this, um, but we didn't really appreciate just quite what we had to go through. And um, so so we're kind of at the back of the queue again. And so sorry, this is going to take a lot longer than we thought. So I, I, I really do think um, it really comes down to uh, how organized, uh, how, how mature the processes are and how organized the firm is in, in, in mm. kind of implementing those processes. And, and do you think that there's anything, you know, we've taken certain initiatives to try and help out the firm. So, for example, on the information security side, we have full information security packs that contain all the key information that mm. tends to be asked and we keep updating it based on, you know, further queries that, that we have. And we try to proactively, um, you know, guide the process of, of procurement. Mm. Um, but would you have any tips for vendors about things that they could do better when engaging with a law firm, on, when specifically with, with reference to sort of the, the procurement process? Um, I think it's just about, um, it's, it's about collaboration and transparency, uh, I would say. So in terms of firms will have their, their processes. Um, and I think it's about the vendor understanding that upfront. Obviously, they understand that, but understanding who is involved uh, and then understanding, okay, what do those people need uh, and how can I get them the information they need as quickly as, uh, as, quickly as possible? Um, so as you say on security, it's an interesting one, isn't it? that you could do all the legwork in the world on security and you know uh, and it'll be fantastic no doubt and you'll have answers prepared to certain questions um but then you know that the the law firms or the organizations you're selling to are still going to have their own bespoke questionnaires <laughs> and you know and it's i don't know whether it's a law firm thing that you know that, that they're all special and they couldn't possibly accept just a plain vanilla security questionnaire that will probably answer all the questions they need they need to submit their questionnaire um, which means that you have to go through a, a, a lot more work. But it's, I think it's the secret is being sensitive to the quirks uh, and the the oddities within individual processes because firms will operate in different ways. They'll have their, their weird and wonderful processes mm. and vendors, I think, have to just be be patient and, and, and ready to, to react uh, and provide the information as, as quickly as possible. I, I actually think, 
uh, a lot more emphasis um, should is actually on the the firm to be transparent um, with the vendor. I, I think the vendors actually, from my experience, do a lot. Actually, put a lot of work in to support. I think the um, what's most frustrating, I guess, when you are a vendor is that kind of black hole, that silence. Mm. And so, I would I would love to see more openness, more transparency on the firm side with the vendors about this is what we're doing, this is where we are, this is what we need. Um, and I think that, that that just leads to a much more productive relationship in the in the kind of pre-sales process. I'd absolutely agree with that. I think you know. One thing that we do really, really value are the relationships that we do have with, um, you know, both the firms that we're going through the procurement process with, but existing, you know, customers as well. And it's very much that sort of partnership type um, relationship. And if, if that can be, if that can come more into the procurement process, um, I think that would be absolutely, mm. absolutely brilliant. Because you just, you don't know what silence means. Um, yeah. It could be lots of stuff going on, but it could also be, it's gone dead for for certain reasons. It's it's been blocked at um, security for security issues or pricing or a whole myriad of things. But you don't really know until sometimes there's a decision, you know, not to proceed. Mm. And it's only then that you get a debrief. And actually, the number of times when we actually feel it's something that had we, there been more communication earlier on, it may have been something that we'd be able to work through mm. to, together. So I do definitely yeah. agree with what you said. I think it's about respect <clears throat> as well, actually. I think sometimes the procurement process almost becomes a little bit too adversarial. Mm. Um, and it's and maybe I've got a unique perspective on this, and maybe you have as well from your experience working in a, in a firm and working in a vendor. But, you know, if a, if a law firm is trying, or someone in a law firm is trying to deliver a tool and is being put under pressure to deliver that tool, they'll be banging on your door saying, where's this, where's that? Uh, you know, where's the security questionnaire? Where's the on? Yeah, where's the onboarding plan? Where's the where's the red line of the contract, etc. Um, but it doesn't often work the other way. You know, if a vendor's saying, um, you know, we're just wondering where the you know, where the red line is, or where are you with this process? I think too often the attitude is kind of, oh, it doesn't matter, just just leave it. They can wait. But but what you don't what you don't know until you've worked in the vendor is that you guys have got, you know, you are working to hit targets. You are working. Um, to, to close deals. You've got other deals on. You're trying to project. You're trying to forecast. Uh, you've got your jobs to do as well. And and so I think it's just about respecting, both sides respect each other, just saying you both try, you, you obviously both want success for the other. Um, and it's just a bit like you say, it's just about partnering and, and transparency mm. and just making sure everyone's on the same page. Mm. No, totally agree. Um, I mean, just on, just on that. So, um, you know, on this kind of solution consulting topic because you know i'm a i'm a big fan of solution consultants and, and, and pre-sales consultants um and people that can do more than a demo because i think actually solution consulting as a discipline is a, is a really really important um discipline i think a lot of the challenges for organizations and firms early on is actually for them to to really uncover what they're struggling with mapping out their challenges their user stories defining their requirements you know, even before the, the purchasing process, it's just about kind of saying, right, what are we trying to achieve here? Um, and that's not always, uh, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes people just jump straight into, hey, I found this amazing tool. It's going to solve all our problems mm-hmm. without kind of thinking what, what problems are we trying to solve? And I think solution consultants can can really help in that process and vendors can really help in that process. Um, I mean, how do you, how did Legatics approach kind of dealing with um, new prospects from a, from a pre-sales and solution consulting approach what does that what does that look like 
Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the great thing, particularly in the earlier days of Legatix, is it was a very focused solution. So we, there was a lot it could do, but it was focused around a pain point that's felt across all banking and finance transactions. So um, what, what we were continuing to explore is exactly how do the pain points differ, um, say, on, on a project financing, which was, the, what was Anthony's background and what he'd designed the software around versus, say, um, asset financing if you're doing an aviation financing transaction or something like that. So we, we did have the great benefit. Um, we were part of Alan Overy's Fuse um, program and actually um, getting direct access to um, lawyers from different practice groups and being able to sit down with them and, and show it and really understand from different practice groups' perspectives what the pain points are, um, where we should be taking the software and really making sure that um, their feedback was going into the product was was really key. But a, a lot of it's just more generally the, the ethos that we've developed in terms of how we actually engage from a business mm. development perspective. It's it's when you're going into the room, it's it's a conversation. Mm. Um and the you know, every this is this is something that's instilled on on every member of the company, but every interaction with end users or potential end users is an opportunity for insight. Mm. And you want to sit there and you want to understand, like, what are the pain points that the people in the room are feeling? If you've got a partner there, the pains that that partner is feeling are probably different to the associate or trainee that's sitting in the room. Um, So being able to understand that for the partner, uh, the partner might be concerned about the risk of um, signing off on the wrong document or... Um, missing something, you know, emails flying around and 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 inadvertently, you know, missing something really important. Um, they might be concerned about having to write off and and effectively lose a whole lot of money on their transaction. Whereas for the trainee, maybe the most important thing for them is to get the deal done, um, to get it done with with limited stress. Mm. So um, and and to be able to hopefully go home before two a.m. in the morning, be able to go, <laughs> yeah. and, you know. That, that's one of the, the greatest bits of feedback that we keep getting is, you know, being thanked by the juniors saying, you know what, I actually managed to get home at, at 7 p.m. last night. I, I, ordinarily, I would have been in the office till 2 a.m. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's just understanding those different perspectives and then um, also being open to the fact that it might be different from firm to firm. Um, you know, you take your insights and generally speaking, you have a sense of if you've got this associate and a partner in a room, you can point out these different aspects of the solution that might be of interest, but making it a conversation, asking questions in the process so that you actually include them in the dialogue. I think that's a really important part of it. Yeah. I mean, do you, one thing that we, we made use of a lot at high Q actually was, um, building out buyer personas, which, um, Again, it's, it's an odd thing coming from from law into into vendor, where you, you, know, you won't necessarily really have, be using buyer personas in in a law firm, but you will do in a vendor because it informs, I guess, your approach to sales, pre sales, marketing, etc. Yeah. Um, and just building those kind of profiles out to say, like you said, okay, this is a partner. What are their What does their day look like? What are their biggest challenges? What do they need from a tool? But then, what does that look like from a from a PA or a paralegal or an associate? Do you, Do you guys make use of um, buyer personas? So not in the formal sense in terms of actually sitting down and mapping them out, but we, we, well, sorry, we haven't called them buyer personas, but we have absolutely gone through that process and yeah. we do continue to, to evaluate it. So, you know, it's something that we very much um, 
you know, make sure that we position even with the materials that we provide. So we, we highlight what the different benefits are and we want to make sure that that does cater for those different buyer personas. Mm. So that if it's being picked up by um, the partner, that they're going to, you know, the enhanced client experience, reducing write-offs, you know, that's going to really speak to them. If it then gets sent on to the information security team that, you know, our the, the, the risk and compliance sort of perspective is all ticked off yeah. for the junior lawyers who we've found increasingly are pulled into the meetings because they're the ones who are really going to be having to adopt this and, um, and, and their opinion does increasingly matter, which is great to see. Um, that, that the benefits are highlighted for them as well. So it, it, it is, it, I think one of the challenging things is how do you position uh, solutions in a way that does, you know, that the same, say, collateral could actually highlight that for, for multiple people or if they're involved in the conversation, how can that be positioned? But yeah, we do absolutely go through that exercise to um, identify what the benefits mm. are from from different buyers' perspectives. Yeah. No, it's interesting. And I think the some of the most successful early stage kind of meetings I've seen are actually I wouldn't I wouldn't describe them as demos or meetings. I'd actually describe them properly as workshops. And and I think this is a bit of a trend that we're probably I think we are seeing, but we're probably gonna see more of, which is actually pre sales becoming more more collaborative, more around actually collaborative problem solving, collaborative workshops, so that you're not just rocking up and saying, you've shown an interest in Legatic, so let me just do a kind of a click-through demo for you and see whether you like it or not. It actually becomes more about, okay, tell tell me about your practice. What, you know, what like you say, what kind of work are you doing for a start? Yeah. Um, How is it resourced? Um, what are your biggest challenges? You know, what jurisdictions are you working in? Um, what kind of clients are you working in? And really collaboratively uncover the current situation, current state, you know, you may not, <clears throat> you may not even demo at that first meeting. Um, but what you're doing is you're getting all the insight for you to then be able to package a solution that, that hits all the kind of key spots and all the key challenges. I think that's a brilliant approach. And it's one that we certainly take that approach in the, in the rollout phase, mm-hmm. um, which, which uh, the, the challenge we've found, and I'd, I'd love to get your view on this, Rob, is the, the the stakeholders are still often um, partners who are very busy, mm. and where we have tried some of that more workshop type approach, the view quite quickly ends up being, I just want to see the software. Could you just get to the like? Can you get to the point? Yeah. Um, and and some are much more open to it, and you can absolutely do that. But um, what what have you seen, and what would your what would your sort of um, uh, advice be on 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 that point when you are dealing with with people who are very time poor and um yeah yeah i think it, yeah <laughs> i know this is it's an interesting one and by no means will i say that we we had it right say high q or that i had it right at high q but i think that i'll give you my perspective on it which is traditionally um partners have been used to being called into a meeting and just being being pitched by probably someone that they can tell quite quickly doesn't really understand in a great level of detail what it is that they do, what it is that they're struggling with. Um, they're just being given the kind of sales sales pitch, sales spiel, um, and they get quite kind of tired with that uh, quite quickly. And we'll just say, okay, show me the tool and then I'll be gone. I'll be on my way. Um, but I think what you realize quite quickly is that if you can bring someone in into the sales process, pre-sales process, that is a subject matter expert, 
uh, not, not 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 even an expert, but just as someone who's familiar with the subject matter. So I know, for example, like you guys and you know uh, Workshare transacted this. Vendors uh, like Latera will do this. Is they actually bring uh, people in from from industry, you know, ex lawyers mm-hmm. or people that worked in that mm-hmm. space into that pre sales process, and that changes the dynamic of meetings very very quickly because. Um, the partners and the senior guys in the room and you know everyone in the room would just suddenly realize okay i'm not i'm being spoken to by someone who's actually felt my pain so someone who's kind of rocked up to this meeting having worked at two o'clock the next day doesn't want to hear a sales pitch they want to hear yeah. someone who says i know what you're going through i know what you're dealing with and i think i've got something here that's going to really really help you um and i know because i've done it i've been there myself i've been in the trenches yeah so i think i i think that really changes uh the dynamic um, I think the second thing that, that changes the dynam- dynamic, and maybe we can come on to it actually, because I know we we spoken about, about this before, is actually making uh, making those sessions more than just a demo, as well. Um, you know, seeing a demo for a partner or a lawyer is great, but you don't get a lot of feel for okay, how could this work? How would I use this? And I think making those sessions a bit more interactive um, yeah. is is absolutely crucial. Because on the flip side as well, you could you could open up a sandbox or a uh, you know, a, a, an instance for a short space of time, I, you'll have the same issues with partners. They don't have the time to engage. So if you can do that in an interactive way, then again, that makes it um, makes it really beneficial. And I think on that point, I'd be I'd I'd be really interested for you to describe actually how you approach it because I know that you guys run these interactive workshops um, and have seen a lot of success there. So I mean, how has that gone for you in terms of running those those workshops? Yeah, so I think the, the piloting is a really interesting one as well because what we what what we basically had until very recently is a, a policy of of not doing free pilot periods, mm. um, and 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 the reason for that is we we just found that people didn't take necessarily take them that seriously, um, and what we did do is we. Um, and we and we can still sort of look at now is is providing a sandbox environment, but for a for a very limited time and for a limited number of users to ensure that it it remain it it is very contained and it's very focused. Um, that sometimes works. Like if someone just wants to get in and test the basic functionality, that can work. But what we often found is that even then, lawyers are really busy. The the, the innovation teams are really busy. Um, there are other priorities going on, and it's generally when the reminder email goes out the day before the period finishes, people quickly jump in, they poke around a little bit and the decisions made off, off the back of that. Yeah. So not so keen. We initially didn't do the, the sort of the free pilots for that reason. Also the sandboxes were not a preference. What, what we did do manage to do quite successfully on a couple of occasions was the um, these interactive proof of concepts that you're talking about and it, it does require the buy-in from the firm but what we basically did there was we said look acknowledging you're going to have to spend some time anyway if you have a sandbox um, doing this why don't we just organize um, a, a session where we all come in we'll do role-playing people will play the different roles on a transaction and you'll literally sit up on laptops and we'll go through the the transaction yeah and the impact of that the impact of actually seeing how it works when a document is uploaded how the workflow works within the system it 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 does enable at the end of of that of that session and that did happen on on these two occasions where people felt very comfortable yes i'm ready to use that on a on a transaction 
Mm-hmm. Um, what we do feel has changed um, since we've done those is that people are much more familiar with transaction management now. Yeah. So we, we um, particularly during COVID, um, we acknowledged that um, times were tough for a number of firms and, um, you know, just getting the necessary budget, et cetera, was, was difficult. So we, we came out with a, with a free pilot period, um, which we, which we hadn't done previously. And actually the, um, seriousness, seriousness with which firms have taken that on has, has, has been huge. And we've had a, a number of firms that have signed up. So the, we, we have actually moved on from that interactive proof of concept approach and moved straight into the in, into the pilot approach because people actually, as good as an interactive proof of concept is, it's still role playing. It's not the same as seeing the benefits on a live transaction. So, um, you know, being able to actually pilot it on a live transaction and make your decision off the back of that um, is is still the the preferred approach and is the one that um, we've been getting a lot more uptake mm. on recently. Is that, have you on that though? Have you not had any challenges with? Um... Because I guess you know, if you want to pilot on a live transaction with client data, then actually a lot of the um, a lot of the infosec and IT and, uh, and risk processes will have to be gone through to kind of clear that. Is there not a risk there that actually your the, the the firms actually have to do a lot of the work that they would have to, and they don't necessarily know that they want to take the tool yet? Yeah, I mean that is a challenge. It it does mean that for the firms they are having to do that work. Mm. Um, but the benefit, the way the way we do it is, the framework's all set up to to um, to continue with usage. So the you know you've done your infosec. So then, if adoption goes really well over that pilot period, you just go straight into um, you know the the usage thereafter. Yeah. So um, you know we do still offer you know different options. If someone does want to just have a little um, you know if if they want to see the basic functionality or consider. Um, you know, the interactive proof of concept approach. Like we're still very open to doing that, but generally speaking, the best way to really see how how um, certainly for for the software that we have um, how how it works is to try it out on a live transaction. So we make ourselves available to help get through that process as as fast as possible. Generally, firms you know they they're, they're getting the benefit of having access to the software for free for a period of time. Yeah. So that helps to get it prioritized. Um, from a procurement perspective, to sort of push it through the the, the process, mm. um, so we've we've actually seen the up, the the uptake has been good. But for for us, that's also a little bit of a threshold of of ensuring that the firm is serious enough um, ab- about moving forward to to the pilot as well. So, mm. yeah, um, pros and cons, Rob. <laughs> but the, but the, and on that, I know you touched on it earlier about the kind of the checklist of things that you would want to kind of know before you engage with uh, you know with a uh, prospective client. What are those, you know, if you're looking at entertaining, providing a pilot or starting to engage with with a prospect, what are the key markers that you're looking for? I mean, I suspect it's about making sure the right teams and, and stakeholders are engaged, the right, that there's budget allocated for the project, et cetera. I mean, what, what are those key things that you need to know are in place before yeah. you're willing? Look, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Rob. This is an area where we're continually learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is the nature of you know, not being one of the large, you know, not being, um, uh, you know, one of these larger um, software companies that, that, that you know, has a lot of these processes in place. We've, we've learned a lot from some that haven't gone so well and where we've probably taken some forward that didn't have the necessary budget or weren't going to take it that seriously. So we, we are continually refining 
um, our, our process around this. But it, it really comes down to we, we know who the target firms are, um, you know, that, that for the moment can benefit from from the solution mm. as it stands and have the greatest opportunity for adoption and, um, you know, make sense for the team to be spending, you know, a lot of time on. So when we're speaking to people, you get a sense of how serious, how seriously they're taking it. You get a sense of their practice areas. You have conversations around, um, you know, which jurisdictions they'd they'd be looking to um, actually roll this out in. So even understanding the, you know, the structure of the law firm, if you're Mm. speaking to some law firms, they're not all necessarily um, global firms. They might be divided so that, you know, you're actually contracting just with one region. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's um, that you're cleared for infosec in other areas or exactly. or adoption will work there. So, just having an open conversation around that, and and also just things like how many how many deals are they looking to use it on a year? Like what what number of users? Um, and actually trying to map out you know what that looks like because we want to ensure as well with how the software is being provided to them that it's going to be providing a return on investment. Um, and we want to work in, in partnership to ensure that we can that we can make that happen. So, yeah, um, yeah it's 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 a conversation, um, but it is something that that we are um, you know continually refining. Yeah, and just on that, that on that topic of uh, RI, actually, so I think this is a this is a really interesting uh, topic of conversation and how how you how you measure ROI um, and what you need to do to make sure you've got the metrics to to measure ROI as well. So. Um, I guess there's, for me, there's kind of two critical reasons um, for for looking at metrics in the procurement process and when you're onboarding uh, tools. Number one is around um, you're building that into the business case, so you can say, look, this is what we're anticipating the return, the value from bringing this tool is. Um, and number two is actually making sure that you see that return uh, post sale. So if in the business case you say we're going to reduce, uh, you know, uh, associate churn, or we're going to reduce the number of hours we spend on you know, collating documents that you you build that into the business plan but you also evidence that post sale and say actually we did do this we did reduce churn but perhaps not by quite as much or we reduced the hours and we actually exceeded our expectations but the the only way you can do that actually is that you that you have got that data to hand that you're actually tracking that data you're collating it in a consistent process um i think a lot of firms and organizations still take a bit of a finger in the air approach because they don't actually have that discipline in, in tracking the metrics. Um, I mean, f- from from your perspective in Legatics, so what you know, what are the key key data points, key metrics that you're looking uh, at demonstrating that you can you could deliver on, um, and what kind of what metrics would you suggest that firms focus on when when looking at ROI? Yeah, so ROI is a really interesting one because it's definitely I think a lot of people focus ROI on. Um, you know the financial side, yeah. Um, but it's so much more than that, and and really, what we've found really successful is again to take this consultative approach. So, really sit down with the firms, even just at pilot stage, and say, you know, what does a successful pilot look like for your firm? Um, how, how can we best support your business? Um, uh, you know the business case to to actually get beyond that, and 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 what are the metrics that that really matter the most? So. Um, you know, we sit down and we discuss things like it might be purely around the number of matters that they want to open over that period. Um, so that's something that obviously we can track from from the system itself and we can report back on. Um, number of users, again, is something that we can mm. we can report on. Um, right, um, there, there are other things that 
end up having to be a little bit more um, anecdotal. Um, so in terms of how you actually measure things like lawyer satisfaction, so how much did the lawyers like it or, or, or client satisfaction, actually running feedback sessions and whether that's our team helping out a, a stretched innovation team. So we've got our own team that can conduct those interviews and, and relay the feedback. Um, likewise with the you know client satisfaction. So actually going and getting the firm to debrief with the client afterwards, how did you find this? Mm. And um, how satisfied they were actually factoring into um, whether or not they've, they've seen that this has been successful or not. Um, do you, do you help? Just sorry, Dad. Do you help? Um, is that just post sale that you'll help do that, or do you actually help them benchmark? Um, because I think I think that's. I mean, that's amazing. I hadn't realised that you would do. You know, you go through that that process of actually holding briefings and um, debriefings, etc., to to find those metrics post sale to say, look, it is having an impact. But I think sometimes I find that you might have the metrics post sale and say oh you know this is we're, we're doing deals in this length of time but then you my question would always be well how, how quickly were you doing them before what was the yeah. satisfaction <laughs> level before you know yeah. what was the churn rate before and actually a lot of people say oh i don't really know and yeah. uh, so do you help pre-sale as we well? do yeah so benchmarking be- benchmarking is something that we do really try to do with firms and it does depend on the on the firm's willingness to kind of get get involved with this as well and, mm. and what data they have to hand some firms have done some quite sophisticated benchmarking exercises already and they do have a good sense as to how much time they spend on on different tasks for example and and then we can actually um you know look at that versus what happens in in legatics we've, we've had some really good opportunities to do benchmarking exercises where they've been um, quite similar transactions that have either happened in, say, consecutive years with a partner that was involved um, and was able to, to at, at least anecdotally be able to say, you know, this is the reduction in junior lawyer resourcing mm-hmm. that we've had on on the transaction. So we had one where, bearing in mind this was a very large um, uh, multinational transaction, um, you know, in the high hundreds of, of CPs, but the, you know, the, the partner had said, I needed four juniors to, to run this transaction last year. And for a very similar transaction this year, it's gone down to two juniors working mm. half time. Um, so, you know, there's a pretty great, I know it's just anecdotal, but there's a, you know, a, a bit of a benchmark for, you know, 75% reduction in, in, in the junior, in junior lawyer resourcing. Um, what we do when if firms are open to it is actually look to do, um, benchmarking of, of side by side, doing one with legatics and one without, and actually seeing um, you know how we can how we can map those across. And we have done that quite successfully to develop out case studies um, with, for example, one of the um, one bit of functionality within legatics is our own um, tool which assists with signing and completion, so the extraction of signature pages, mm. generating signing emails, etc. And um, for one of the firms that we worked with, they actually on a subset of the documents that they ran using Legatics, they actually got um, th- uh, their team to do it the old way, and they were literally able to benchmark uh, against that. So that that's been really effective to uh, try and quantify, you know, try and try and get some quantitative data around, mm. um, you know, the benefits from from using using the solution. I think. Um... Benchmarking is a really interesting topic, and maybe I mean I've not really looked into it in, in a great deal of detail. But I'd be fascinated to know the, the the organizations you just mentioned that do benchmarking very well, kind of how they do that, um, because I could see this emerging as a bit of a discipline, actually, particularly as yeah. uh, tech adoption grows. 
that will actually have dedicated roles and teams that go in there because there are some things in in the metrics that that you wouldn't naturally record. I think there are there are some things that are, the data's there. It just needs to be manipulated and structured to give you the benchmarking um, data. There are other things that just aren't being recorded. So, for example, I know that a lot of tools will say, like contract lifecycle tools or even transaction management tools will say, reduce the number reduce the number of errors in your matter or the, or the contracting process. But how many people are actually recording the errors? You know, how, how, how do you know what, how many errors you've made, and then how mm. you know on mm. average how, how mm. much you've reduced it by? Um, so I think benchmarking isn't isn't just about someone coming in and just gathering the data. It's actually com- someone coming in and saying, right, what 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 metrics are important to us, and what processes do we need to put in place yeah. to actually record those metrics in the first place, so we've got the benchmarking data. The, the other challenging one, Rob, is um, and, and you'll probably recall this as well as a lawyer is. You know, if if you're if you take something like the um, um, well, let's let's take banking and finance and the conditions precedent process for example. Like, if you're um, wanting to understand how much time is spent creating a checklist mm. versus updating a checklist versus sitting on an all parties call, um, you, you might think that it's easy enough just to go through the narratives, but the um, you know the, the the billables that people have put down. But I know the reality that when I was doing administrative work, I'd put it under a general <laughs> yeah. admin billing code. Yeah. And as much as you might have 20 different billing codes to try and capture the data for all those things, I'm just going to put it under a general admin code. Exactly. So the ability, short of actually going through all of the individual narratives, and that's again on the assumption that people are actually providing very detailed um, information in their narratives about what they're doing. Um, even if you do that exercise, it can still be really challenging. So, even to a degree, if some of the data is there, it's not necessarily in a form that's that useful. Mm. And and I do think that sometimes it can be more valuable actually just getting anecdotal feedback from people. I, I would have I always had a pretty good sense as to how much time I spent on a, a certain task if you just asked me. Um, I know lawyers. I, I I always used to sometimes feel embarrassed about how much time I was spending on admin work, so I'd like downplay it a little bit, or I wouldn't record all the all the work that would then ultimately be written down, which is a bad practice. Yeah. Um. But generally speaking, I I think I'd be able to say, you know, I used to spend um five hours on this process, and I now spend two, for example. Um. And it's not perfect, but I I do think sometimes it is potentially better than some of the data that uh, we have in in um in in the narratives. I think so as well, actually. Yeah, that overall kind of what's the general feeling is it can maybe potentially more valuable than making it too scientific. Yeah. Um. You know, and that that includes yeah, like you say, talking to the juniors, talking to the partners, talking to the clients as well to say you know satisfaction. Like we did the last five deals the old way, we've done the last three the new way. Give give me a feel for. How it's gone? Do you feel like you've seen a smoother process, a more efficient process? Do you think you've had more transparency? Just give me a general sense of you know feeling about that. I think that's uh, I think that's right. But I guess um, you know seeing that return doesn't just happen. That, that seeing that ROI and that value doesn't just happen overnight. Um, I guess once you you know once you purchase that tool, there's that whole change process to go through, um, and and that requires full engagement from. The firm or the organization engagement from the vendor as well um you know you've got to determine as an organization right who do we start with uh how are we going to train that group of people how to use this tool how are we going to support them how are we going to measure that success uh how do we take feedback 
Um, where do we take this tool next if this goes well? All that needs to be thought about. Um, and I think sometimes that does happen. Sometimes I think people are almost blinded by the enthusiasm of bringing the tool on and then suddenly think, ah, how are we going to do this actually? This is this is quite a big big challenge. So do you see some, some organizations, some firms struggle to convert their enthusiasm during the sales cycle into that kind of well-defined change program? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's it's no fault to of, of, of the firms in a lot of cases as well. Like there, there is that enthusiasm. They're just they're really stretched teams. Mm. And um and, and also with some of the again it's getting better because I feel like some of the these teams are getting more resource and they are growing out, but um there's a bit of a, a question mark as to when is the tech the kind of keep the lights on tech and should sit with IT and when should it actually be sitting with a you know a, a, a different team a specific like innovation team and who should be driving that and we've yeah. we've had it with some of our customers where the point of contact has changed multiple times just because the firms themselves are still trying to figure it out um and what 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 we have found is um you know we've really focused on growing out our um our customer success and engagement teams. And I can go into a bit more detail yeah. shortly if, if that's of interest as to the distinction that we have between those. But mm. we, we in, in part, this is recognition of how stretched these teams are and how we want to support and, um, you know, support these teams to actually get good adoption. Um, uh, but it, it is recognizing that, that short of that, it is going to be very hard um, with, with particularly some firms to actually make that happen. But yeah, what, what, what do you see? Do you, do, does that sort of reflect on what your experience is, Rob? Yeah, so, I mean, it is an interesting one that I think, and it goes back to my original point around um, when you asked me the question about best practice in, in, in procurement and what firms do behind the scenes. And I think it goes back to the same thing, which is um, you've not only, well, actually, it all comes back to preparation. Uh, kind of preparation, transparency, and collaboration. So, and I think this is where you know some some partners and, and lawyers would go wrong in the firm where they get enthusiastic about something and then forget to engage the right people, um, whether that's through the procurement process or otherwise, uh, and then they come unstuck. I think the same goes with with change and adoption, which mm. is you know even if you've done the best best researched um, uh, process of determining what you need to go through to procure a tool and who you need to engage with and, and IT and legal and risk and compliance, even if you've done all that, they'll deliver what they need to deliver and then you're left with a tool. And then people are saying, okay, right, you've spent thousands on this. What's your plan? What's your plan? Yeah. yeah. And you go, ah, I, ah, I don't know really. And I think that's, again, it comes back to the preparation point, which is you, you've got to then move into Right. What's the strategy? So are you going to start with a particular practice group, a particular team, a particular yeah, working group? Um, who? You know, what kind of deals are you going to do with it? Are you going to reach out to a specific client to say, we're going to use this tool with your deals now? Are you okay with that? Um, are you going to appoint champions? Are you going to, who's going to do the training? Are you going to leverage the vendor? Are you going to build out a team internally to actually run the training? Um, are IT set up to to support this because I think that's the other thing that's forgotten a lot of the time, yeah. which is IT is seen as a blocker to bringing a tool in. But actually a lot of the time they're asking questions because they're worried they're going to be lumbered with a tool after the sale that they then have to support and maintain. And so they're going to want to know during the process that, that you're thinking about that, you've planned that and, and actually start to put some processes in place to, to support people and support the tool going forward. So for me, again, in terms of best practices, it all comes back to, to planning, uh, strategy and execution. 
I 100% agree. So our approach, just to, to elaborate a bit more on what I was saying about our distinction between customer success and, and engagement, and this is, um, I think, a slightly different approach than, than what some other vendors do. So our, um, our customer success team is um, focused on our end users. Um, so they're there to provide technical assistance mm. and answer any user questions. So they're the proactive, they're the reactive, um, they oversee the reactive support. So we've got the ability to, um, you know, contact our support team on, on the deals, but also um, the more reactive. So we've got our own default processes, which can be adapted by, by the firms, depending on how they want to do it. But it's actually acknowledging that for those first few deals, ensuring that they go really well is, is important. So actually getting in touch with the users, making sure they have all the resources they need, that they've had training, um, and, and sort of, you know, uh, explaining how our, how our default processes go. Whereas our engagement team um, uh, are more focused on, on the customer relationships and, and to identify and overcome adoption barriers. Yeah. And it's really about um, maintaining momentum, making sure that there's, you know, uh, ROI throughout and and to the point that you were just discussing about the planning and, and strategizing it we, we actually run uh, rollout meetings to collaborate with the law firms to actually plan and execute on how they're going to be using legatics mm. um, so we we sit down and what, what we what we do is we're, we're constantly tracking what's what's working well and what's not working with our um, you know our, our large number of law firms who, who, are, who are our customers and we have just a, a conversation around this is what we have seen has worked really well mm. we acknowledge each law firm is different so feel free to you know tell us if culturally this this isn't going to work but we go through and we actually discuss a lot of the things that you mentioned about you know how's training going to work you know finding the champions um, but it's also a conversation around you know actually asking like um, what's the culture of the firm um, you know what what information do you have from previous tech rollouts that you've done and what's worked and what hasn't worked um, you know, are there any specific do's or don'ts that you have for, for us as the vendor? Um, you know, this is what we, we like to do and we see as being successful, but tell us if there's something that just isn't going to work for, mm. for your firm. And it's a, it's a conversation and that's all mapped out and it sets the framework for how the, how, how the relationship and the broader rollout is going to work. I think it's a really interesting point. Um, and it goes back to that trust and respect, uh, piece that I mentioned earlier in the kind of pre-sales um, process where you need to to respect each other, you need to be transparent, you need to share information. I think the the same trust and respect needs to happen in the post sale because I actually think the temptation from a lot of organisations is to think, sure, the vendor's offering to help us here, but what they're what they're really trying to do is drive usage sky high so that we have to kind of upgrade up our contract and, and purchase more. But I think actually that's not about you know that that there is an element of that. Obviously, you want. To, to get more revenue from from clients and customers, but what you actually really want is to make sure that they're a happy customer, because you know recurring revenue uh, and making sure you, your clients are happy and they don't churn and, and they see value from the tool and that you've delivered on your promises is actually really important. Um, and and so I think I would love to see more firms, more organisations actually trust more in the vendor to say actually they do know what they're talking about. They probably rolled this tool out for 10, 20, 30 other clients. Well, this is the first time we're rolling this tool out. So who knows more about what makes it a success? It's, it's going to be the vendor. So I think opening your doors and saying, come on in, sit down with us, tell us what works, tell us what doesn't, tell us what we should be thinking about. How can we make this a success? 
I think that openness is so so critical. I think um, uh, the firms that do that will see more success than the firms that think that they can come up with the answers themselves. Um, I think they will. They'll they'll come unstuck because they're not learning from the best practice that you as a vendor have experienced. Mm-hmm. No, I I totally agree. The um, I mean, it, it's so hard. I mean, you can still put in place all of this, and there are still you know so many barriers when it comes to the actual practical getting people to change their behaviour. You know, the behaviour change piece is still it mm. is still really challenging. Um, we um, uh, I don't know if we briefly touched on on this uh, previously, but we we've um, we're actually running a a project which we got uh, funding from Innovate UK for, which is identifying barriers to um, um, to adopting legal tech yeah. um, and looking at, at behavior change principles. Um, so we, we're, um, yeah, we, we, we're working in collaboration with a number of firms. The official partners are uh, DLA Piper and Herbert Smith Freehills. But yeah. basically, we're taking principles that we used in, in, um, in other fields of behavior science and uh, running these workshops with firms to... Um, so we do separate session with say trainees associates and partners so they're closed groups so that people can feel open to sort of talk about it but it's using these frameworks to uh, have a discussion around um, you know what are the current barriers so um, for example one of the frameworks is something called the combi model which is, is the premise that your ability to change a behavior is determined by your capability to perform a new behavior the opportunity to carry it, carry it out, and then the extent to which you're actually intrinsically motivated to to do it, and we explore all of those with with the um, uh, you know with with the lawyers. And what we then do is we create a diagnostic report uh, back, taking that feedback from the different groups to the law firms. Um, and the the idea is it's a longitudinal um, project that we're doing, and we're going to collate and anonymize all that data, and hopefully provide it as a um, industry wide report that will um, hopefully provide some uh, help to how we can try and drive change from a behavior perspective to, mm. to drive legal tech adoption. Well, that's fascinating because that's going to almost be a sort of like a roadmap to what kind of environment needs to be in place for you to most successfully adopt technology or at least what markers are there for, for things that are going to stand in the way of, of successful tech adoption. Um, and I think doing that across the different roles independently is uh, you know is so critical as well, rather than grouping it together because you've got a mixed message there. I think looking at because tech adoption is just so patchy depending on who you're talking to, um, yeah. and the appetite is so different depending on who you're talking to. But even within groups as well, actually, I mean, I think it's you could separate out partners, but even you know looking at partners, you get some that are so tech savvy and almost yeah incredibly like innovative and creative, and then you get the, the classic old partners that just want to do everything the way it was done 20, 30 years ago. Uh-huh. Absolutely. So what we've done to try and address that is, um, it's, it's quite interesting. There are two aspects to doing it in the separate groups. One, one is, um, yeah, we, we really want to make sure that um, associates, for example, feel that it's a safe environment to actually speak up and, and say certain things that they might not want to say in front of some of the more senior yeah. members of, of the organization. Um, but also ensuring that they just have a voice, um, that they don't get drowned out by some of the more, you know, some of the more senior people. And on the partner's point, what we've tried to uh, make sure is that we don't just have self-selection bias of it just being the really innovative partners who want to be part of the the project, actually trying to uh, get from the law firm some of the you know naysayers to be involved and actually understand what their perspectives are mm. to 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 make this really useful. 
Mm. I mean, that's going to be fascinating to read, actually. Really, really interesting. But yeah, it's going to be so useful both from a um, organizational law firm perspective, but also from a vendor perspective as well. Um, it might really change behaviors, actually, about how you approach things like um, pre-sales and onboarding, customer success and engagement. So we're already finding off the back of some of these workshops that, um, you know, we are continuing to adapt our, our internal processes of, um, you know, the insights that we've gained from it. So we are, we, we do hope it will be something that will be yeah useful for the, for the sector as a whole. Yeah. But I mean, just generally, I think this is what, going back to the point I made earlier around the kind of, um, when you were asking the question about how do you engage partners who are kind of skeptical when they're in the room and you're demoing and it's about bringing subject matter experts in, um, I'm not saying it's always about just bringing ex-lawyers in who can talk, you know, talk the talk the language. But it, I think they're definitely. I think what we're seeing in in techn- legal technology in particular is just a move towards the need to be more uh, empathetic and customize processes and approaches, recognizing that actually what you're selling now is tools that help very specific areas of of legal practice. Um, it's not just oh, I'm selling a, a document storage tool you know, which is quite generic. You're actually selling something that's going to really have an impact on how they do financing deals or M&A deals or private equity deals mm-hmm. or, you know, real estate deals or litigation tools. And it just does require a much more customized, um, tailored approach that's that's got more kind of empathy and, and more nuanced understanding about the different players that are involved, the types of work, the challenges they're facing. And so I think that's why there's so many opportunities at the moment for, um, not not just lawyers, you know, moving into the legal tech space and into vendors, but you know, other people that have worked in law firms or at least understand the legal services market moving in. Because I think I just think it's so valuable to have those people in there because they can that they, they're able to to adapt and they're able to kind of stand in front of, of potential clients and really understand um, what they're going through and the challenges and and the key messages you need to deliver in in, in order to to make things a success. So. I think it's a really exciting space to be working in right now, is, uh, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> I completely agree. I completely agree. And I'm really excited. I think, you know, it, obviously COVID has been tragic for, for so many reasons, but um, I do really feel that it's an exciting time for legal tech. And, um, you know, it, it really has accelerated um, adoption and discussion around um, all, all these solutions. So mm. I think it's going to be a... Uh, you know, a, a really um, productive and and exciting 2021 and beyond. Yeah, no, definitely. Dan, listen, that's that's been a fascinating discussion. I'm glad we we got the opportunity on the podcast uh, to delve into some of these topics because it's quite easy to to talk about product and all the exciting newfangled developments and you know, no code and AI and all sorts of things, um, but actually. Yeah, it means nothing unless you actually make the tool a success and you onboard it properly and uh, you know you you help and collaborate with your customers to to make sure they see the value and I think it's important to delve into a lot of these topics actually so thank you for for, for sharing your views and your insight uh, thank you very much for having me Rob I've really enjoyed the the chat no 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 problem at all just one one final question um, a little bit Colombo there didn't I uh, one, just, <laughs> one, one last thing um, but uh, one last question. Um, just coming back to Legatics for a second. So, what does the next kind of twelve to twenty-four months look like for you guys? What are you kind of where are you going? What are you excited about um, over the coming few months? I, I, I know it's been a tough year, but I'm sure there's some some great things coming down the line. Yeah, no, absolutely. We, look, I think all things considered, um, it's actually we, we've been really delighted with um, how, how adoption has gone this year. You know, um, deals have been. Um, 
you know, there have been fewer deals to use a transaction management platform on, but overall adoption has actually been has actually been up. Um, so the number of deals um, going through the platform is actually up, which I think which I think is really great. We we're very much expanding uh, on the the use cases that that we use for. So we're we're very much being used uh, across the board now on on corporate and banking and finance. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got some really exciting additional features coming um, early in the new year. So. Um, We'll be doing a bit more of a major sort of announcement about that, but I think people should should look out for for that. But broadly speaking, it's just going to make Legatics more and more useful across um, a, a broader range of matters that they that they do within within their practice, and really taking on board um, the the huge amounts of, of feedback and insight that we've gained from the the processes that we've actually discussed on on this podcast. So you know, our ability to stay really close to our end users means mm-hmm. we really understand you know what they're looking for out of their transaction management platform and 2021 is going to be about um you know really continuing to deliver on that within the platform so yeah more use cases um more features um and yeah um watch out Um, i think if anyone wants to sort of follow our our progress feel free to um you know follow us on linkedin and we'll be updating everyone about um about that particularly in the new year yeah no definitely i mean it sounds sounds amazing i can't can't wait to see what you guys do next and uh where you take the platform you know i just hear consistent positive feedback from from any you know anyone i speak to that that customers of yours you know, and I'm not, I'm not just saying this, that, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a commercial podcast, but just genuinely uh, all the feedback is so positive. So um, I think you guys are doing a great job and uh, no doubt we're going to go on to, to bigger and better things in the next, uh, next couple of years. So uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing it. That's brilliant, Rob. Thanks so much. Yeah, no problem at all. But yeah, thank you again, Dan, for, for joining us today. I think it's been a great discussion and uh, for everyone else listening, uh, the next episode of Legal Tech Arcade podcast will be out very soon. Cheers. That's it for this week's episode of the Legal Tech Arcade podcast. If you enjoyed the show, then please go ahead and subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next time.